0: And welcome to or welcome back to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, how's it going, buddy?
1: It's going great. You know why we're here. We're here to give the people what they want. Let's go.
0: All right. We've got another fun one today. This one, we get to nerd out on a little psychology, a little bit of, you know, maybe science And more importantly, how that impacts performance. But before we get there, you know what's coming. We are going to pitch you for the Running Scholar Program.
1: Hold on. Let's talk about specific things that are awesome with it. The scholars on the clubhouse have made their own kind of channel, if you will, for high school coaching chat, and it's just exploded. It's freaking phenomenal. It's like you got all these great high school coaches talking back and forth about different problems, potential solutions, different ways they're actually doing things like completely organic. Steve and I had no, actually no zero influence on it. It is what we wanted to see. It is the, I'm going to say it right here. Now the number one online community for coaches in distance, running. Come, there we go. Come join. You're missing out. You know, it's,
0: it's phenomenal. I mean, that's what we were hoping. We just want to create the space and see how it naturally or organically evolved. And it it's doing that. And we're on the way and we're gonna keep it going. And then you know what else is great about the scholar program? What's that? Last season? week What's that? we had our wonderful monthly Zoom training talk. And you know, we're sitting there, you know, I'm I'm listening, coaches. We're responding, all that good stuff, and man, I'm just sitting there being like, "This is so cool!" Every month, we're spending like 90 minutes nerding out on on topics, and more than just nerding out, like solving problems. You know what issues are people having, and then John and I input, but more importantly, we've got you know dozens of dozens of other coaches who come in and be like, "Hey." I tried this. I mean, one of the best examples was, you know, on strength training. Someone was like, Hey, we need to do strength training, but we don't have any equipment. I can't act. We have zero (laughs) equipment. What are we what are we gonna do? And people are just, you know, they're like. They're just coming up with stuff. They're just like, get some bands. Like it's find some equipment, find some tires or old heavy stuff. Get your backpack, like have people jump on their back. Like it's all sorts of random stuff where it's just like, hey, this is I've I've been in this situation or I've had to do different things. Like, here's how you get it done. And, And that innovation and creativity is what it's all about and for less
1: than a dollar a day you get access to it it's less than the cost to actually like go to a conference right to fly to hotel to pay the conference fee and that's only like for a weekend at best right this is every day 24 7 drop in not only access the clubhouse and ask questions and percolate and kind of create those connections there but also to get all this content about the history science Um, you know, and practical application of distance running training throughout ever. I mean, I don't know. Still, I think it's the best deal on the internet.
0: (laughs) Best deal on the internet. You heard it.
1: (laughs) I mean, for a nerd like me, I, yeah, I wish someone else had done it so I could just consume it rather than have to be the one sweating my brow and helping create the content. But you know what? It's a labor of love and it's awesome to see it taken off. So get on board. Do not wait.
0: (laughs) All right, you heard it. Get on board. So this week, let's dive into the topic. What are we talking about? Positive illusions, how they can hurt and help performance. So John, let's start like with this. What
1: in the world is a positive illusion? I mean, essentially they're coping mechanisms, right? But they're unrealistic, favorable attitudes that people have towards themselves or to people close to them. That is the kind of clinical definition of that.
0: I love it. So what what we're going in here is is this is our brain, our psychology, all has, as John said, these like coping mechanisms, and I call it, um, it it's kind of like our um, our brain's like immune system to keep us thinking that we're like happy, healthy, positive, like. People And we're surrounded by those, right? So anything that kind of attacks or threatens our sense of self our you know, competency and anything like that, failure, all those good things, anything that attacks or threatens that stuff, we have all these wonderful little coping strategies to make sure that it, that doesn't like damage us. So that we can walk around thinking like, you know, oh, I'm pretty good at this or I'm above average at just about everything (laughs) or, you know, oh, I have control over this thing, which I really don't have control over or, you know, when I fail, I'm going to blame the weather or, you know, this accident over here Um, instead of like doing the deep work and understanding maybe what the real cause is. So we have all these like nice little psychological cognitive biases that essentially protect us. Yeah.
1: I mean, the brain is hardwired for pleasure, to feel good, right? Like to avoid discomfort. And we know in the short term, this can be of high benefit, but also potentially corrosive, right? Like addictions are essentially feel good mechanisms gone haywire that create a negative cascade. So we have to anchor that reality, right? We want to feel good. We want pleasure. That is the default operating system of the brain and the body. Why? Because feeling good and having pleasure is a, you know, way to ensure and maintain, quote unquote, survival.
0: Yes. I mean, that's what it is. It's it's that That surviving, avoiding, (laughs) avoiding the pain, discomfort, our brains are like, um, I I read it once where they said that our brains are uncertainty-reducing machines. Mm -hmm. We hate the feeling of uncertainty or threat or anything like that. So we go about any possible way to reduce it.
1: But the reality is conflict changes life. I mean, that's the reality. And that's essentially what... A lot of different, you know, uh, ups and downs, if you will, if so to speak, or failures do, right? From failure, failure is a conflict. Training is a conflict, right? You want to do something in training to prepare yourself to do something in performance you've never done. So you have to push yourself and create a conflict to change. And that's through running longer than you've ever ran, running faster than you've ever ran, doing it for a longer duration than you've ever done it. And there's a price to pay for that. And we talk. We have all these coping strategies to talk ourselves out of that, right? To say, uh, I don't want to do that because you know what? That conflict in the short term is bad, but in the long term is good. So it's this paradox we live in as coaches and athletes that we're trying to constantly create positive conflict that results in a positive change, but in the short term has a negative effect. So.
0: hmm it's 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 that that kind of we're biased towards the short term immediate reward um, dealing with things etc. Instead of looking at the long term and sometimes you got to suffer a little in the short term to get the long term benefit. But you know and-
1: we see this um, n- need and desire actually elevate more so in the last two years with kind of the pandemic and COVID. I recently saw something about Rolls Royce sales have gone through the roof. And the CEO of Rolls-Royce was like, well, people realized life was short. So they said, hey, I'm going to buy Rolls-Royce now rather than lay that gratification for later. And that was a justification of why Rolls-Royce sales have skyrocketed during the pandemic era is because of this realization of, oh, the pandemic and COVID brought to my realization that life's short, so I might as well enjoy it today.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was reading a a research study um, the other day that essentially it made that same point, which said, whenever the world feels uncertain, like we reach for certainty elsewhere. So in this case, it's like, world feels uncertain, life is short, where am I going to get my certainty? Well, I'm going to buy something that makes me feel good, right? Or buy something that gives me a sense of like status. Whatever it is, like those are the kinds of like biases, you know, that that our brain does to essentially protect ourselves. Now, okay, we've gone through a little bit of the high-level overview. How in the world does this relate to performance? Well, you hinted at this, John, or kind of outline it is like if we go into a performance, right, and we quote unquote fail. What happens is we can either take the easy route, which is justify, rationalize, you know, maybe uh, reaffirm, or we can take that challenge, that difficult route that leads to growth, which often includes, like, making sense of, like, integrating, learning from, which isn't our natural, like, tendency. So our, our our kind of hope here is to go over some of these positive illusions and talk about how they can be useful and you know get in our way so that hopefully you can um, bias or push or nudge your athletes towards that like productive discomfort or that productive uncertainty then the defaulting to grabbing for the the candy instead of the vegetables.
1: And let's start with the granddaddy of them, the illusion of control bias. That I think is the most important one to be aware of and understand how it can manipulate us for better or ill.
0: Yeah, so quite simple. It's pretty pretty straightforward. It's our tendency to overestimate our degree of influence over external events. Mm -hmm.
1: So... What, (laughs) I mean, something as trite as like the flip of a coin, right? Like, oh, we think, oh, I'm gonna, or roll the dice. Like, that's essentially what Las Vegas is built on: the illusion of control bias. (laughs) That's exactly
0: what I was gonna (laughs) say. Like, gambling would not exist if if this bias didn't occur but we think that like oh we've got the, we've we've got some luck if we blow on the dice it'll help like if we get on this the, A the street, street the hot right, hand the street, fallacy
1: yes <laughs>
0: the hot hand like w- we're good to go we've got this you know whatever have you okay so so let's think about this in terms of gambling like it could be it it can be both <laughs> um if you think you have control when you don't It can lead you down um, some dark paths where you're sitting there being like, okay, like, great. You know, I have control over this thing. And you overestimate your input into it and underestimate luck or other things, which can lead you to the wrong conclusion. So I'll give a quick example in, in sport, right? If we underestimate the impact of luck or what have you as a coach, if you get someone who's super talented, you can sit there and be like, you know what? It was my training program. This training program is perfect because this kid ran 405 for the mile in high school or whatever have you. And you're discounting the impact to a degree of just... Things that are outside of your control, which is you might have just hit the genetic lottery with this kid, for example. Mm-hmm.
1: And we see that all the time, right? We will dissect whoever is "quote unquote" hot right now, whether it's the hot high school coach with the dominant high school team, or the hot um, college coach with the you know dominant high college team, or the the athlete who just won the gold medal, right? I mean, you can look at, say, Matthew Centro, great example, you know, like people dissected it left and right. Oh, what would Centro do? He was gold medalist. But, you know, since he, you know, won that gold medal in Rio, it's been actually a really rough go for him, unfortunately, um, post-2016. From a competitive standpoint, you know, training standpoint, all these things, like he's had moments of... Oh, I thought I was ready to go in this illusion of control where he, you know, in practice before the Tokyo Olympics, he ran a really smoking 1k time trial and thought, man, I'm ready to rock because I just ran one of the fastest 1k times ever, um, you know, in practice here, but then was met with disappointment come, you know, the Olympics. Why? Because the illusion of control is you have to see like the crucible of running rounds. In a championship race, that skill, that preparatory, that ability, much different than going out and showing up fresh and running run one really hot smoking time, right? And that's where we 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 tend to think there's this immediate correlation, and it's not, right? And you see this all the time in distance running. The preparatory time trial qualification meets that exist where people run. Really fast times, or uh, especially in the US, a young uh, quote unquote high school phenon who runs a really fast time. We think, oh, they ran fast time, they're set, they're gonna be awesome, they're just gonna rock and roll. And that's just, they're gonna be the new it girl or it guy. 9.9 times out of 10, after about 22, 23, 24, they're just another runner, right? And I'm like, oh, what happened to that person? What happened to that person? And this illusion of control tends to create this illusion of certainty about the future, not just tomorrow, next year, but like the next decade. Why? Because we are constantly um, story-creating uh, creatures that try to create predictability out of the chaos and unpredictability that is life, and not only today, but or, and also tomorrow.
0: Yeah. and And to me, it... As a coach, it tells you to get really clear on what you have influence over and what you don't. Yes, and, and we try to and get really all the cl- time too, right? Yeah, all the time. And and what you have, you know, how much influence over it? Because there's sometimes where you are gonna just kind of shrug your shoulders and be like, "Hey, that was kind of beyond our my control, beyond our control. Like, there's nothing we could have done about it. Like, and it's okay." And sometimes that's going to be accurate. There's other times when, you know, it maybe was, there are things that are within your control and you're going to want to default to like, oh, you know, maybe it was this, this and this. But if you have that clarity and you understand like, hey, this is what I can control. This is what I can influence all that stuff, then you know where you can dissect and come back on your performance and and change things or not.
1: And we're you spot on, Steve, because we are, we so want this, you know, cause and effect relationship bias to be true, right? And that's where the famous correlation does not imply causation, meaning in the, like, say the late 80s and 1990s, like all the old timers will say, oh, we got away from running high miles. That's why we're no good. That's why, you know, we became less competitive, blah, 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 blah. You know, but when you really look at it, what happened was VO2 max became the Vogue, became the thing. And so everyone was chasing VO2 max. And so when you look through training throughout that era, the dominant thing that was propagated, the dominant ideology that was um, put forth to coaches as this is something that you can, have an effect on if you do this, and this has a correlative effect on this causation is VO2 max. Well, we know that that's not true, right? It's a nice to know, nice to have. Yeah, you have to have a certain VO2 max in the ballpark of being elite, but if your VO2 max is 89 versus, you know, 69, it's not life or game changing for an elite, you know, distance runner. But we used to think it was, and so we chased that because we so, so are hardwired from this illusion of control to think of these cause and effects when really these correlations don't add up to the causation.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. I I think the VO2 max phase um, really, really damaged things to a great degree. And it also, like not to go down this rabbit hole, but during the 90s as well, you had the uh East African explosion and it was kind of the wild west in drugs yes um <laughs> which EPO uh, is gone little, wild yes yeah little talked about but i think it's important there because it like it set the bar so high that you know some people just you're sitting there and like i can't i can't get to this bar so what's what's the kind of point and demotivates you and all that which is again something that's kind of beyond your control if you're an athlete so okay we've got the illusion of control let's let's jump into another of my favorite ones which is the optimism bias
1: oh my goodness that one is a really important coping mechanism i think to harness because you have to have optimism you have to have creativity as an athlete you have to believe that you can do something tomorrow that you couldn't do today or what's the point of training, right? But you also have to temper it because you have to not make sure it becomes, you know, you get um, so illusioned that you think tomorrow or in really unrealistic time horizons, you can go from the current level you're at to king or queen in the mountain. And it's really tough to temper. Exactly. I think this is great because
0: it's like understanding this bias helps you kind of dial in a little bit on where you need to do, to go because this bias. And just to make it clear, I mean, the name kind of gets at it, but it's, it's our tendency um, to believe that uh, we're less likely to experience negative events. Like we have optimism for the future. So if you set a
1: goal, stuff. the goal is going to happen. I've, I'm going to run this time yep. in three months. It's going to happen. It's, I mean, it, it can be very healthy, but it also can be very corrosive. You know, and and when I think
0: about this, I go back to actually um, a year or two ago, I read this wonderful biography of Abraham Lincoln, and I can't remember that uh, the specific verbiage that they use, but they essentially said that, you know, uh, Lincoln was a like realistic optimist or a tragic optimist. And the way that they described it is he had optimism for the future so that he could, you know, that the... Union was going to win, that they were going to end slavery, all that stuff. But he was realistic in the moment, which meant, you know, from battle to battle, from decision to decision, he was almost like a little bit, a little bit negative, but like hyper realistic. And I love that classification there because like that to me was like Lincoln kind of dealing with this bias to be overly optimistic. And he was saying, hey, let's harness this, let's use that optimism for the future to give us this big dangling carrot, this goal that we can aspire to. But in the moment, in the in the here and now, like I've got to be hyper-realistic because I've got to know like the decisions I'm making, like, are going to, you know, can switch which way we go in the future and all that good stuff. And I think. That's what we have to look at as a little as, as coaches is, yes, that optimism is great. It can act as the fuel, the fire to get you to where you want to go. But if you are unrealistically optimistic in the here and now, often it can create like, you know, uh, it can set you up for um, for, you know, having a freak out or, or failing or whatever, because like, if you go in and we've all had athletes like this, right? You go in, you have a high school kid who's run five minutes per mile. And he's like, I'm going to go out on at 4:30 pace. And you're just like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, buddy. Like they're like, no, my training's been great. I believe I'm confident I can do this. And then they don't listen to you. They go out crazy for the first half mile and then blow up and run slow ship, shit, right? That happens. So what you got to do is you got to temper that so that it doesn't get in your way.
1: And that's where you have to understand, you know, the reactions that happen. Because all life is, is action-reaction, right? Newton's second law. It's pretty simple. So you have an action. What's the reaction? If someone who's been training around five minutes pace and done a lot of work at that body of work, plus or minus a little bit, goes out and then tries to run 430 off the bat, well, they can do it for a little while, for sure. But for a whole mile, probably not. Why? Acidosis. And this, you know, positive or optimism bias thinks, oh, I can just go do it because if I put my mind to it, anything's achievable. And it's like, true, in time and maybe in time. And that's where as a coach, like when someone comes to me and says, all right, Hey, I want to work with you and I want to get better. And I want to have this goal. And I go, okay, you got six months to invest up front before you see anything that's going to be, you know, an inkling towards the direction you want to uh, head. And they say, no. Well, then I know like, it's just going to be a tough go because that foundational period of six months Of new training, of new philosophy of training, of new style of work, new emphasis and themes of work. That's where a lot of reconstruction takes place. And the body is slow to reconstruct, right? The brain is quick. It's how we know, like in strength training, right? People get stronger in the first three weeks to six weeks of any new strength training routine. Why? Not because the muscles grew. That we know they don't. It's the brain, the neural adaptations enhance. So the brain is a very quick to adapt entity. However, the morphological, you know, tissue structures within the body are very slow to adapt. So, and that's the, uh, the paradox we find ourselves in is the brain knows and thinks it can learn things quickly. It does. That's what school is. Schools. I learned this today in school. Great. We're going to test you on next week. Good. All right. Move on to the next level. In training of athletic proportions, those gains are slower. So as a coach, you have to maintain the enthusiasm of the athlete with your own enthusiasm, but then also shift and temper that enthusiasm to more realistic time horizons and also with a buffer, a buffer for should things go wrong, should injury happen, should illness happen, should a little layoff happen, right? Should disappointment happen? Early on in my coaching career, I didn't have the buffer. So I just said, oh, six weeks, you'll be good to go, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, life got in the way, right? Things, unplanned events and circumstances happened. And so now I realize I should create a buffer, whether it's a a, week, a day within a, a week training block or a week within a, you know, um, a month training block where we can catch up or we can embrace and, um, you know, not not be at, you know, not get disappointed if things aren't right there at that specific date and say, hey, we got another week, we got another couple of days, we gotta get another couple of weeks because that will allow that little buffer will allow that optimism to be maintained and also to kind of hedge your bets on the time horizons to maturation of the development of that athlete.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think not only are we dealing with this like, optimism bias this like not seeing like being able to predict the crappy things that probably will happen and get in the way um but we're dealing with a world that is often like has compressed time horizons now <laughs> right because More so than uh, ever. yes social media all that stuff like there's very much a it's very much a win now world um And as a coach, like, that can get in your way, right? Because there are so many options available, especially once you get out of high school. You know, you're seeing this in college with transfer portals. You see this even more so in the elite world or post-collegiate world where people can just kind of jump around, and that's great to a degree. It's great to have that freedom. But what often happens is you jump, like... Once you experience that, that first setback and go for the grass is greener elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think having that buffer where you can at least, hey, we're going to commit to each other for this much time. We're going to try X, Y, and Z and let's see what happens, you know, and let's stick through if it's a little of a rough transition and it's not that smooth. It could be smooth. Great. And if it is, we'll, we'll just keep rolling. But if it's not like, let's stick things out. And stick to the plan and the process so that we have a chance to see if this works or not. And I think that is a great way to kind of deal with that that bias. Now, on a high school level, you know, similarly, you know, when you have athletes join or when you have athletes even set ambitious goals, I like to, again, zoom them out, give them perspective. Like, yes, it's great to be optimistic, but... Let's not judge ourselves based on the first race or the first couple races or what have you. Like you've gotta as a coach, like keep that long term view in mind and keep coming back to that. So that like the uh the athletes don't spiral out of control and, and kind of give up or lose confidence, et cetera. I'm glad so. you brought
1: that up, Steven. It reminds me of like say the middle distance runner. And what often happens is this kind of plateauing or peaking of like say the um, you know, kind of marginally conditioned middle distance runner that happens throughout a season. You know, a lot of times we have that in high school and college to some degree. So they'll get better every week in let's say the eight hundred or the mile. For about three to five weeks, right? And it's like, they're just getting better. They're getting better. and They're getting excited. And they hit a plateau, right? Where they stop getting better. And they're kind of, that's where they're at. And I struggled to understand this early in my career, why that was happening and go, oh, it's acidosis tolerance. That acidosis tolerance, as the body creates buffering mechanisms, has about a, you know, depending on the conditioning and exposure rate of the athlete, a three to six week time horizon. That's why you don't want to do it until later. A lot of old timers call this anaerobic work. Um, and But then once you hit it, that's where you're at. And so if that's all you have is this crescendoing of acidosis tolerance through the racing crucible, which is the best way to create that exposure to that acidification, then when you don't have anything left in the cookie jar, so to speak, that's where you're going to be. And the body will find that homeostatic norm because again we're always trying to get back to balance or equilibrium when thrown out of it and if you don't work the neurological capacity or continue to work the strength and strength endurance capacity of the athlete throughout that period they will reach that plateau and that's just where they'll be and they'll predictably be a two flat half miler or you know a four tenth um, miler and that's okay if that's where you you know have outlined them to to be from the competitive championship portion of the season. If not, you got to go back and recalibrate. And that, again, is, you know, a really important thing of how we as coaches need to temper those expectations to maintain the positivity because you want optimism. You want this enthusiasm. You know, you want this excitement. But also, to know what's within your control and what's without your control and recalibrate the athlete's time horizons and essentially I've noticed this what usually happens is every season and even every coaching relationship is a you know it's a three-act play you know a lot of things are three acts you have the beginning all right that's excitement excited for the new the new season the new coaching relationship we're all excited and then that sustains you for a little while and then conflict happens conflict of some sort the get sick get injured Get a defeat, uh, have a setback in training, not, you know, not able to, you know, get through a training week, whatever. Right. And then that conflict is the crux and the make or break of either the relationship and or the season. And then you have the resolution of, hey, we doubled down on these efforts. We went back to basics. We parted ways. The athlete kind of checked out and just got through the rest of the season, etc. cetera. And that three act play kind of recycles itself. Ad nauseum, if you will, into like smaller little micro dramas, but also throughout the course of you know a career as well on the macro scale. So as a coach, you gotta be up front and say, "Hey, you're in the excitement stage. This is awesome. I'm excited too. What's gonna happen? What's your response gonna be when conflict arises? Because it will arise. And not saying I'm predicting failure. I'm predicting bad. But conflicts, like I said before, changes life. So when that change moment happens, that conflict-driven events creates that meaningful change opportunity. How are you going to want to respond? Write it down. Let's talk about it. And I'll remind you of it then. And then that will get you towards or closer towards your resolution, which is hopefully your goal or the outcome you seek throughout this relationship or season or what have you.
0: Yeah, I, I, I love how you brag that up. I think it's like that. It's like that. How do we handle these conflict points that really freaking matter? And it's the same
1: in a race, you know? right? You start off a race, you're excited. The middle of the race, conflict. Oh, it's a lot harder than I thought to run the pace coach. And I thought, <laughs> how you respond to that creates the resolution. Oh, we're finally, it's over. You can see that in a mile, right? Mile, excitement, people run fast. Middle of the race, they slow down. The resolution, last, you know, lap the race. Oh, thank God. Okay, it's over. I'll speed up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is. You know, which gets us to one of these
0: positive illusions, which is this inflated assessment of our own abilities that we have a tendency to do. Right. We all think we're above average. Um, But that's why this is so important, because that that dictates how like how you approach your conflict and what you see, because if you have this inflated uh, assessment and you think, hey, I can run four thirty for a mile when you really can run four fifty then about halfway through or a little before reality is going to smack you in the freaking face because like we can fool ourselves in a lot of things, but we can't fool ourselves in, in, in a physical activity like running and racing because like fatigue doesn't care about your psychological biases. It's going to occur. So when we get smacked in the face, Right. Then it's like, you know, it it just sends us deflated and we don't manage that conflict well. The example I like to give is if you expect to feel, you know, good at six minute pace um, during a marathon and you expect to feel good at halfway and you start and you feel terrible, then all of a sudden you're going to spiral because you sit there and be like, oh, well, I expected this to be easy. It's much harder, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Okay. If you expect it to be, you know, moderately difficult, and it's moderately difficult, then you're not going to freak out. So, setting the appropriate expectations that are realistic, based on your abilities and your ability to handle that challenge, is incredibly important. And actually, there's some good biology and science behind this, like. Um, Whether we have what researchers call a challenge response, which is more adrenaline and testosterone dominated and positive, or a threat stress response, which is more cortisol dominated, tends to depend on our kind of assessment of um, the challenge and then our ability to handle it. And if there's a good overlap between those, meaning you have a good assessment of the challenge and you're assessment of your ability to handle it is accurate, and within that bounds of, hey, I can handle this challenge, even if it's going to be difficult, then you're going to be more likely to have a challenge response. If there's not overlap, if you uh, you think this is going to be easy, and then it's super hard, or you think you can handle it, and then it is very clear that you can't, then you have that threat response, that cortisol flooding your body, and you're not going to handle that conflict very well. A lot of it is, That assessment piece, in making sure we don't fall, you know, victim to that inflated assessment of our own abilities, which in in something pure and hard like racing can get in our.
1: That biology is like why I love track races because track races they have a countdown lap method, right? You start a ten k, you start at twenty five, and it goes down. You see the number go down. This reduction. And versus you can have a mindset of accumulation, which I think creates threat. Now, let me expand on this a little bit. So what I found is if you have a reduction mindset towards this challenging or, or you know, conflicting event, you're undertaking like a race or a workout and you go, all right, 10 laps to go, only 10 laps left eight laps to go, only you you've already anchored and already committed to finishing the activity, right? It's in your mind. And so you're just reducing the discomfort lap by lap, right? But if you have an accumulation mindset of like, oh, 10 more laps, oh, 10 more K in this marathon, this more mindset, this accumulation mindset creates threat because you have more to do. So it's this addition And it's saying, oh, I don't know if I have enough to give with this more mentality. But if it's less to do and you're just checking things off the list or you're, you know, creating less duration of this activity for yourself through this countdown mindset versus this count up mindset, then I found that's why I thrive so well as a track athlete and not so well when I, you know, dabbled in the roads was I wasn't able to have that countdown mindset on the road when I, in my young running, uh, younger self in my running career, but on the track I could manage it and navigate it really well. Uh, because everything's oriented towards counting down. I mean, even the last lap, the bell lap, they give you a gun. It's like, Hey, it's a party. Let's go. Let's get this thing over with. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I hear this a lot in athletes. Like, you know, the, one of the best ways I viewed training was like, I would just say, okay, here's my you know, whether I was working with a coach or coaching myself, it's like, here's my week of training. And this is what I have to do this week. And every day was just a little bit less throughout the whole week. And I was just counting down, so to speak, and just checking off everything I had to do. And I always built in like a buffer day or, you know, a recovery that for some reason, if I couldn't get the miles in that I want to get in, if I was playing that game, then on that buffer day, that was like my makeup day. So let's say, you know, I couldn't get the duration of work I wanted in, or I couldn't get one or two 200s in because of time constraints or how I was feeling or the weather. Then on that buffer day, I would just make up everything I didn't do to give myself the exposure to stimulus when I was a younger athlete. You know, you can argue the merit of that for better or ill from a physiological or rest recovery standpoint. But let's say I didn't get in five miles of easy volume that I was scheduled in in a 400 and two times four or two times, uh, 200 at, you know, 3k pace. Then I would just do that all as just one little mini session and not really a session, but just for me, that helped give me this positive illusion of control that I was able to get everything in and it reinforced this ability for myself to believe that tomorrow, the next week, the next race, that I could get things accomplished even if they didn't go as scripted, as planned, that I could create a plan B, if you will, plan C, plan D, or be more responsive in a positive way in the moment versus being reactive in a threat negative what was me way in the moment.
0: Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I love that <laughs> that countdown. Um, because what, what you just did there is you framed it as something that like finishing wasn't in question, like you were going to finish. And I think often, like, when we get in those kind of conflict moments, it's like, how do we turn our attention to the right thing, which is keeping us engaged so that we can navigate the discomfort, right, versus having those doubts of, well, am I going to finish or not? Am I going to quit or not? And often when quitting comes into play and is the the thing that dominates, it becomes Kind of kind of how do I protect protect myself? yeah ego you know, ego protection, kind of, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, ego protection idea versus not. So I think again, it's like what we're looking at is, yes, we need to be optimistic, you know, in this kind of positive illusion things. We need to think like, oh, we can we can accomplish our goals, finish this race, et cetera, et cetera. But we've got to navigate it in such a way that we have that realism in there. That allows us to sit back and be like, okay, this is difficult, but like, you know, I got eight laps, like take one lap at a time or in the marathon, like, you know, I'm going to make it to the next mile or I'm going to make it to this turn or this bridge where you can break it down enough where it's hand, where you can handle the difficult moment, you know, or the difficult part in that moment well, having this like faith and optimism that you're going to get through it over the
1: long haul, and that was you know I can relate another personal anecdote of how this works so well is even just yesterday like my kettlebell coach you know during our weekly session he had me do essentially Tabata single arm kettlebell swings so 20 seconds of swings 10 seconds rest for five minutes alternating each um, each hand so it, it ended up being like 10 swings on the right 10 swings on the left back and forth and woo wee. Hey, friends, I'm here to tell you, I did not die. I did not pass out. But I felt the ass, you know, uh, acidification of acidosis accumulate over those five minutes. It was rough because I'm used to doing 10 minutes or 10 second swings with 20 seconds rest, a little bit more classical, um, you know, uh sprint type training or sprint endurance type training methodology, right? But that was the point was to create a little exposure for five minutes to something difficult. And the only way I got through it was not thinking about, Oh, can I do this? Cause I knew exactly what we were doing. I was like, you, you know, these are Tabata swings. Right. Um, but I was like, all right, I'm going to try and I'm just going to go one round at a time. And if, you know, I do reach that acidification point where I just need to tap out, tap out, I don't care, but we'll just see how I can, how far I can go and how well I can manage without breaking form, without breaking technique And the great thing was that mindfulness practice of just being committed to say, I'm going to get one set done and he'll... And I said, just set it on a countdown. Just set it on a countdown. We'll start at this and we'll just count down. By the time I got to like two sets to go, it was tough. I was feeling the burn, as they say. But I was like, you know what? I'm two sets away. I can do one more. Hey, I'm one set away. I think I can do one more. And I just gave it a go, right? Without a like end all be all. And I'm here to tell you that that degree of acidification did not burn me or destroy me. Cause then for the next 10 minutes, I did Turkish get-ups for, you know, one on each side every minute for the next 10 minutes. Like it's still something that's more like endurance based and strength, muscular endurance based right afterwards. It was actually a very unique and interesting and fun circuit. And it was, I enjoyed translating what we were doing with kettlebells to how I would potentially do that if we were running, because it's the same thing from an energy system standpoint, but those coping mechanisms are important, because you got to remember, these are positive illusions, and this is the paradox. <laughs> they're good. They are, they are positive, but they also can be corrosive and negative. Because they're illusions; they're not real. So it's like this yin and yang, sweet and sour. Some sugar is important, but you gotta balance it out with a little bit of savory, which is the realism. Otherwise, it's just all sugar, and then oh my gosh, <laughs> now we got chronic diability,ing cardiac, metabolic issues. <laughs> if that's all we're eating, don't eat sugar all the time. Don't eat just that's sugar not- all the time. Balance. Yeah.
0: Yes, just sugar. Now we're going to go down a diet rabbit hole oh, and then all the diet bros
1: are going to come after us. And, and you know, and, and hey, to... you know, Steve, we should start selling supplements like, uh, you know, every Charlton out there. <laughs> Take our supplements and, man, we really want to make money. Jeez. That,
0: that That's right. We would sell supplements. If anyone's selling you supplements, just be very, very wary. That's all. That's all I'm saying. That's that. If you take nothing away from this podcast, <laughs> a positive illusion. It's just here's here's your illusion. Um, if someone's selling you supplements, they're trying to put an illusion over you. If someone's manufacturing
1: um, content and they're your business model to sell you supplements, they're trying to pre- create a, a corrosive illusion on you for sure.
0: <laughs> okay. Back to, back to the topic, but I, you know, I, th- I think you're spot off, and I actually think that's a good kind of summary of this whole issue is that these positive illusions are great. Like, they're there, they've been there for millennia. Why? Because they allow us to survive. And humans have to go through all sorts of crazy conflict. You think back in the day, probably even more so in terms of physical conflict, but this physical psychological mental conflict that we all have to navigate and these illusions like help us get through because if we got down and you know severely down depressed etc after every single uh, conflicting thing or threatening thing it'd be very hard to navigate the world so that's why we have these positive illusions to allow us to perform to bounce back to think we have a chance You know, i.e. gambling and the illusion of control, even when we don't. You might think, oh, well, that sucks. Well, it does for gambling, but you know, if you were faced by, I don't know, some lion on the Serengeti, then like thinking you got a chance, thinking you have more control than you do, and it's not just kind of luck out there, then you know that that can help with survival because you you know, you at least you think you got a shot. So My point is this, is that we've got to, in our modern world, we've got to know when to harness these positive illusions, this illusion of control, this optimism, optimism bias, right? This thinking that this over appraisal of our abilities, and then when it gets in the way, right? When does it get in the way? And when do we need more realism, versus optimism and i think getting clear on that like helps you navigate these uncomfortable situations this conflict the failure that can also be positive and leave a lead us towards growth
1: it's true i mean and that's really what we're all about is growth we are growth wired growth oriented creatures we know the brain is infinitely neuroplastic, right? You can keep growing and growing you can keep learning new things. Um, we can grow and change and have a growth mindset if we so aspire throughout our lives or not. And that, I think, is the crux of the matter is essentially we have all these biases and illusions because we are a conflicted self. We have this ability to be abstract and create ideas about things and work towards them Uh, You know, putting people on the moon in outer space, doing all these things where we have these abstract thoughts about a world that doesn't exist, but could exist. But then we have to be very realistic and say, okay, well, what are the concrete steps and timelines towards constructing and creating that world we want to exist? And that's where we have to know, you know, not simple arithmetic solutions like how many miles a week do I need to run? How many, you know, reps or sets do I need to do? What pace do I need to run? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But how the body responds and that individual body responds to conflict. And this is what I love about, again, going towards Bonerjuck's, um, you know, individualized block methodology is because he recognized that the body will respond to conflict generally on certain time horizons, but also individuals respond to Sustain conflict on their individual time horizons. So rather than say everyone's going to respond in six weeks, he said we'll start at six weeks and then we'll track and see how this one person responds. And we'll track and see how this one person responds and what they respond to and how they respond to it. And over time, develop a sophisticated model and understanding to better predict that individual's time horizons of response to conflict, i.e., training. And Rather than make it complex where we're doing something different or all these different themes all the time, we're going to just make it simple on ourselves. We're going to do a couple things and really focus on them that are compatible at one time and do that over and over and over again until it's time for it to change up. And then once we get the response and we know what the response is when the load or conflict or stress is no longer highly stressful and highly uh, overwhelming to the organism. And this was done before we had HRV reading capabilities, you know, all this biotech data available at us. But now we can kind of have a better measure of that by saying, all right, this is really what the training process is. But to artificially say, if you run 80 miles a week at your zone two for 80% of it and the other, you know, 20% we're doing it zone four or higher, And in six weeks, you're going to be ready to go to run this time because that's what the formula says. Um, What ends up happening is we create this illusion of control more than anything through these very simplistic narrative of numbers that, remember, data is there to help us interpret what happened and to create some understanding of cause and effect. But it's not the driver. It's very simple, right? You, You go hard. You, you create conflict and stress yourself and then you do nothing, right? This sleep is very important for muscle rebuilding, not solely because of all the neurological benefit. You're literally doing nothing. Your muscles are not tense. <laughs> like sitting down and atrophying and playing video games or just reading a, uh, a book in a chair is very similar to rest. I mean, you see this with like a lot of uh, Bulgarian weightlifters. They would just lie down and do nothing for like 15 minutes between sets because they want to create no tension in the system so that when they went and did a lift, they could create tension. And so it's this balance, this back and forth. So if you're going to be in a high tension state of a lot of activity, well then, yeah, you need to swing back and balance that with a lot of recovery and rest of no to little tension or duress. But without that tension or duress, what we're getting now with the pandemic or the epidemic, I should say, of obesity, overweight, cardiovascular diseases, these are, you know, organisms and people that are not exposed to enough tension or stress, and the pendulum swung unfavorably the other way. So it's understanding that core, what's going on, and then creating, you know, a a training scheme or a culture around that that can help people thrive, which is the important thing to take away.
0: I love it. I mean, it really is that ebb and flow, and it's, it's that ebb and flow and then understanding the individual nature of it, which I think if Bondarchuk does really well, and if, whether he uses methods or not, is understanding that individual nature is so important, and I'm going to tie this back to one of our biases here, which is, as, as coaches, we think we have the illusion of control in their training. We tend to think, oh, we know this about all this stuff. And if we do this workout, then it leads to why? Well, for several for many athletes, it doesn't. The things that we're taught, while generally true, and maybe on average are true, are not always true for all because of the individual nature of the stress response recover, adapt. Right. And um Actually, Trent Stellingworth posted a, a wonderful graphic from a study that showed they all had everybody train at 70% of uh, VO2 max, I think. So just kind of steady effort. Everyone did the same thing for weeks on end. And then they looked at the, their biology, which was like signal pathway activation at the like genetic level, like as deep as you could go. And some people saw huge changes in, like, activation, which meant that they got a stimulus for adaptation. And some people saw, like, negative changes. You know, and this is at the very lowest biology, like, the lowest rung of the biology to get that adaptation, which eventually leads to functional changes. And his point was this, is, like, even for something we think, like, A leads to B, like, steady running, steady Almost all aerobic running, layered-based marathon to, running. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, should read to like A, B, and C adaptations. Like Trent's point was like this study shows it's all, all over the freaking map, and I think again that's a little discomforting, but it is also a little freeing in the sense that yes, on average, this leads to that, and there is a mean in there even for this study, but individual variation occurs to a much greater degree than we give it credit for. So as a coach, like don't have this illusion of control because every book, including mine, but every book, article, person you talk to or listen to, including us, like tells you this generally leads to that. That doesn't mean that it always is. So take the time to experiment, to test, to record, recover, all of those good things so that you can see for this individual athlete, is he following the the general accepted trajectory or maybe not? And you gotta change something and adapt and adjust.
1: And that's and you know, it's so important to say, Stephen, I'm glad you brought that up uh, with Trent Study, is it's a starting point and not an end point, right? The general uh-huh. adaptation syndrome. It's general, it's the general expectation direction, right? Whether you ascribe to the super compensation model or the two factor fitness fatigue model, it's just these maps are just general starting foundations for we think it kind of works like this. And when you hear coaches, you know, talk about training, whether it's in clinics and presentations or reading biographies or training booklets or schedules or, you know, Daniel's distance formula, et cetera, what they're talking about is the people and athletes who adapted the way they thought. <laughs> you never hear about, oh, yeah, 20% of the team got sick, injured, or slower with this training methodology <laughs> and didn't respond at all. We kind of just nicely, you know, skirt that narrative and that reality out of the presentation. <laughs> but it's true. Anyone who's worked in a team setting on any level knows there are going to be. High adapters, moderate adapters, and non-adapters, non-adapt- right? Non-responders. The question is, you have to have that curiosity mindset. Okay, why are the people who are responding, responding the way they are? And why are the people who are not, are not? And it's very, very tough still to measure changes at the hormonal and genetic level. Because that's really what's happening, right? We were talking about actually in the um, you know, weekly or monthly training talks um, with the Scholar Program last week about strength training. And, you know, one coach was saying, I know I I want to put in strength training, but I don't want to do it on this day or that day. And, you know, I kindly interjected and said, well, strength training can be a benefit to an athlete who's a high responder hormonally to strength training on the day of a hard running workout afterwards, because it will give them the boost. It will help create a positive cascade of hormonal outputs that will help the recovery and reconstruction versus the person who's a low responder to strength training. Might more benefit from that strength training being done the day after a hard workout session because they're already depleted, and that's going to further aggrav- uh, aggravate that condition and create a longer recovery time horizon for them. So you want to give them a day to respond, or the inverse too. If you have someone who is a low adapter of strength training, but a high adapter, or or uh, excuse me, has a, a a high sensitivity of strength training. In a low sensitivity to a certain type of running workout, like a long and strong workout, like your you know, your more marathon types, you can put them through, say, a 10-mile tempo or a 10-mile steady state, and then have them do a strength training session because the 10-mile steady state did not create a you know high conflict environment for that athlete. So they have more restorative energy and more resources available for that high conflict. Activity, which is the strength training and the inverse as well. Like, say, Alan Webb's a really good example, and we brought him up. He could do, you know, a bang them out you know, 200-meter repeat session and then go do immediately after a strength strength training session, and he got a double benefit from it because both things were hormonally arousing to him. Steve, training with him, got a double deflation, you know, benefit or, you know, not benefit, but a reaction because both things were hormonally deflating to Steve. Same training, same coach, same environment, two very, very different response types to the activity. And that as coaches is where our sensitivity with athletes needs to be a little bit more sophisticated. And why I always say, oh, it takes me six months to get to know you because I need to know who you are as a responder to different stimuli and and how you respond because that will then help me craft a little bit better training program for you so you'll feel better more often versus just fitting in the box and saying, well, the book I read said do it like this. And we gotta do lactate threshold work all the time. And if we don't, well, you know, you're you're behind the eight ball because that's what the Inga Britsons are doing and that's why they're so good. Is that one thing alone, that lactate threshold, sub-lactate threshold work is it? And it's not the case. You gotta know who you, you're coaching and coach the athlete in front of you not coaching the hypothetical athlete, uh, you know, on, in the textbook.
0: Love it. I think you summed it up incredibly well. And especially our, again, this, this positive bias causes us to jump from, you know, Oh, what's Centroids doing? Oh, what's Singer Britson doing? Oh, we've got to do lactate threshold. Oh, we had to do VO2 max. Oh, this is the key is it's it's again highly individualized there is no key key your goal is to figure out what works with the people you got
1: yeah remember when your former employer uh you know used to have his athletes uh do you know rock and roll speed workouts after races because their races weren't hard enough (laughs) and then everyone started mimicking that right everyone started doing like these fast 200s and fast 400s and like I won't lie. I started trying it out. But what I realized was like, no, actually there is merit to doing early on in races, in early preparatory races during like the specific period or, or early competition period, post-race workouts. But it has to be balanced. It has to be the inverse of what you just did. So if you're a miler or a 3K runner and you did this 3K race, mile race, intermediate race, highly acidic, you should not be doing speed afterwards. That should be more lactate base work. And so then I shift, you know, I saw that own reaction, that mal reaction or maladaptation in the athletes I was working with. So I shifted towards that. Okay. Hey, now we're going to do lactate eight hundreds or K's or miles, depending on the athlete after that work. And then they started to respond a lot better and got more out of that day and that stimulus, um, to their benefit. Now, had I just said, Oh, this is the way this in vogue group is doing things now and I have to do it that way or else because they have some of the top level athletes who may or may not be having um, some kind of uh, pharmaceutical assistance, then, you know, I I probably would have burnt out and done wrong by more of the athletes I was working with at the time than to make that shift and realize, hey, this is who I'm coaching and this is how they're responding successfully. So I'm going to go in this direction. <laughs>
0: It's a brilliant example. I won't. I won't leave any
1: other comments. No comment. Beyond from Steve, that. as usual.
0: <laughs> no comment. But you said it. Brilliant example. I love it. All right, everybody. Well, thanks again for listening to the On Coaching podcast. We really appreciate it. If you find this content interesting, share it to your other coaches. You know, give it a share. Let us know what you think. And as always. Come join the Writing Scholar program. Get in the clubhouse. Come join the high school discussion, which is going on fire.
1: It's awesome. This is, join this is not the noise you hear on the normal message boards that are free and any troll can post. They're all vetted. They're all paying people. Steve and I have the ability to kick anyone off at any time if we want, if they go outside the code of conduct. This is true signal. True signal out of all the noise that's out there. So get on board for less than a dollar a day. Easy peasy.